there's a great quote from Lane's piece in uh, the Working Class Perspectives blog, Blue Collar Babies, Why America's Working Class Needs Affordable Child Care. Uh, made based on a memoir from Stephanie Land, brilliantly illustrates how America's entire social contract is stacked against working class parents, especially mothers, now affordable quality childcare is an essential fix. So Lane, why don't you sort of start our conversation uh, about MAID, jumping off from there. Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to, Chris. So, you know, I loved this show and it's a must see show. I hope that, I hope that your listeners will uh, take a look. It's on Netflix. I think it's one of the best depictions of the obstacles facing working class and poor parents in this country or poor people really in this country. So what I really love about MADE is that it shows uh, how all these issues come together, uh, interact and make it just so incredibly difficult to be um, you know, a successful mom uh, when you are poor, when you are unhoused, uh, when you don't have childcare. And at the center of this kind of Gordian knot is childcare. Because we see, you know, that Alex and Maid, uh, she leaves a, an abusive relationship. She does not have a home. She doesn't have a job. She she actually finds a job, uh, but to, to do the interview, to do the job, she needs childcare. Uh, and uh, she has a two-year-old in tow. And so she ends up having to rely on her unreliable and mentally unstable mother uh, for childcare. And eventually, you know, she does get a childcare subsidy, uh, but then her housing falls through because her 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 apartment has mold, and and then she can't go to work, and she doesn't have childcare. It goes on and on and on, right? And. Uh, and I just thought that um, the way all of those things are uh, intertwined made it a really good job of showing the reality. Um, and I we want to get Kathy in, but I have to say, it's a hard sell, a show to sell. I, I agree. I, I loved it. I, I I didn't binge it like like Elise did, but um, I sort of I doled it out, you know, one episode a night. Um, but when I you know try to talk about it, people are like you know they. Ooh, you know, it, it, it sounds depressing to folks. Um, and I mean, I've, we had poverty when I was a kid and I think it really resonated for me in that way. And you do kind of feel like, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to see a happy ending, right, Lane? <laughs> you know? Especially knowing that the system is, is so tough, but it winds up being really watchable. I think so. Yes, I think so. Uh, the acting is terrific. Um, the woman who plays Alex, Margaret Qualley, is, I didn't know anything about her, but wow, she's terrific. And it turns out she's actually uh, Andy McDowell's daughter and Andy McDowell plays the mom. The acting is terrific. Even the little, the little child does a good, a really great job. Um, you know, and so, and the writing, although it is tackling these large issues, um, it definitely remains watchable. There's moments you smile and laugh, you know, because she's a whole person. She's not just a poor mom, right? Well, Kathy, I know you, uh, you're looking at a bunch of TV shows and looking at those labor issues. So, uh, and what drew you to MADE and what did you take from it? Well, I, 
I mean, I agree with what Lane and Chris are saying that there's like, there were elements of humor. There was a stylistic thing that, that the producers, that the directors and writers did throughout, which I really liked, which it would like ping numbers on the screen where you see her bank account going down yes. or up. Yes. And you see that like, if you put too much gas in your car, you overdraw your account. And that, but it was done in a way that was, there was pathos, but there was also humor. One of, um, one of the lines that really got me, she goes to use her EBT card for the first time and she feels like the spotlight of sort of poverty on her. And she has a flight of fancy where she thinks that the person checking her out says, instead of clean up on aisle four, right? Like that's kind of a joke that you say in grocery stores. She says, clean up on aisle poor. Mm. And um, I, it just, it, I, I just felt like it was humorous and it was stylish. Like it didn't, it wasn't like poverty porn. It didn't like drag us down. It showed, it just showed the humor of, I, not the humor of poverty, but the, it used humoristic, touches to draw us in if if we ourselves as the viewers are not currently in that situation can, can you talk about that term poverty porn because I've, I've heard it and I'm, frankly in a lot of the reviews of of this they talked about it and I'm, I'm I think I know what it is but I'm, I'm actually not sure I do well I think there's like an almost prurient like inappropriate curiosity with like how the other half lives right the famous jacob reese mm. photography collection from the turn of the last century in new york like middle class people i think are imagined to always be um kind of hungry for the ugly details of of poverty so i think there's there's an element of that in this show but i think these stylistic touches and her flights of of fancy where she's sort of like, there's a scene where she's cleaning this rich woman's house who has a nursery staged mm -hmm. to sell the home. And she imagines herself in the nursery with her daughter. Like the, 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 um, the, the, where, where the show takes the character's imagination kind of pulls us out of that sort of melodramatic soul crushing, like depiction of poverty that is one way of doing this kind of program. Yes. Is, I'm sorry, go ahead, Elise. And I, I think that is because of the author, because the author lived it. She's not coming in, looking from the outside and telling someone else's story. She's telling her story, right? So you, you don't have that uh, uh, glamorization of, of tragedy. Oh God, it's so awful. No, no, sometimes, you know, in the middle of tragedy, you can, you can laugh. You know, uh, you can find something funny, and I think that that I didn't I didn't know that when I was watching it. I felt it when I was watching it, but it wasn't until I saw the interview with the author of the book that I said, "Ah, unlike the help, she is the person. She is the help. She's not telling the help story. She knows the help story from the inside and out." Yeah, Lise, where did you see that interview? It's with Stephanie Land, is the person yes, who wrote the Thank memoir. You. Mm -hmm. Somewhere on YouTube. Okay. And she I was, 
Yeah, and she was interviewed on on Fresh Air. Uh, what was interesting is that apparently, and I haven't read the book yet, but I want to. Um, apparently, they only took the the basic storyline, and then obviously put all kinds of other stuff in to to dramatize it. And she's a producer on it; she's happy with it. But there are some, I think, some of the more left critiques of it, um, kind of find fault with the dramatizing. And I, I, I want to get to talking a little bit about that, but first I want to, um, I, I want to get more, at least you and I sort of intentionally have held off talking about, about it. I want to get, but what was your, I know you, you'd like watch it in a weekend, right? Or something like that. <laughs> I watched it in a night. I stayed. Oh my God. <laughs> hardcore, hardcore. I never do that. I never yeah. that. Uh, I've never binge watched anything. Um, you know, I tried Game of Thrones and it didn't work. I, I couldn't get it. I tried Frankie and Johnny or whatever it was, Frankie and Grace. Mm. Um, that didn't that didn't do it for me. But this did. This this made me go, what's next? I gotta I gotta see what's next. I gotta see what's next. So yeah, I was I was captured from from the moment. Was there something that resonated for you personally? Was it just the story? I mean, I because I because I found the same thing where I, where I kept thinking, you know especially with, you know, they kind of leave you with cliffhangers each time and you're just thinking, man, you know, how many episodes of this? This is just going to get worse before it gets better. And I'm not sure it's going to get better because I didn't know the ending. And I'm, I was kind of thinking, you know, it's, again, you know, it is, it's not poverty porn. I agree, Kathy, but it is about, I know enough about that system. It seems like a very real depiction of the system, of that system. And it's not a good system. It's a bad system. Um, it's, it's, it's not happy making yeah, things where you want to well, sit down. You know, I, I think, I think, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> go for it. Go for it. No, no. I, I, cause we're talking about government systems yes. and lots of people who just trash the government. It's like, mm. oh, the government can't do anything. Government's just a mess and nah, 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 taking our money. No, 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 no. I, I mean, I think it's the way it's, it's organized and, and, and that this is, you know, my tinfoil hat conspiracy theory. They don't want to make it easy. No, you should, you should suffer for this. You can't, and I, I, you know, and I did have some, I did take exception that some, that often though, the working class women in the, in the story were often dis displayed as being, you know, antagonistic, bad attitude, every, every, I was like, everybody can't have a bad attitude, okay? There are some working class women who do their jobs and have a good time, we'll tell you, with the exception of the Latinx uh, sister who was in the, um, uh, the home with her. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody else was like, nanny, nanny, nanny. But um, I think that the system is broke, and I don't think it's I don't think this wants to be fixed because I think they really believe that people should be there's an underlying belief that people should have to suffer as opposed to when you capitalism makes it easy to spend your money. I mean, the first time I went to another country and could put my ATM card in and get back the I was like, this is smooth. Why couldn't why couldn't getting government assistance be the same way? Kathy. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I, I I wonder if how you know if it's if it's sort of an accidental sadism uh, because I get the feeling that everybody in the system wants to do well by the people that are that that are that are suffering, but you see that the amount of intelligence and kind of high level brain functioning you have to have to fill out all these forms and 
you know, you have to have a pay stub before you can get the childcare subsidy, but you can't work until you have childcare, like all the catch 22s. I don't know how intentional those are, but you see the, that when they pile on top of each other, that it's, it, it's just impossible. Um, you know, she makes it out because she ends up using, you know, she, she has to couch surf. She has to use a lot of bad options for childcare. Um, and, 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 but, and she has to have, she has a lot of bad luck. She has, she has a run of good luck then I think that helps, helps her to get out. Um, the, the Stephanie land herself does grow up middle-class. So I think that this is also maybe a middle-class person's um, exceptional experience. And then she's a good, she's, she is good at getting like somebody like me who has a much more uh, middle-class uh, upbringing um, that, that she's able to speak to me in a way that helps me to understand what what she went through and then what lots of other people in that situation go through. Lane? You know, uh, I, I appreciate both Elise and Kathy's um, thoughts on this. I mean, you know, uh, when I think about what she, how she sort of managed to get a foothold and every time she got a foothold, it would slip, right? <laughs> But one of the central pieces was that she goes to a domestic violence shelter yes. and, uh, you know, that shelter is in a resource that was available for her. She was reluctant to do it, but she goes in and they help feed her and clothe her and house her. Um, you know, there's a point where she, she goes to the boutique in the, in the, domestic violence shelter and she has nothing she's left the house with nothing and there's this wonderful sort of rapport between the woman who's a also a resident at the shelter who's running the boutique and they say oh you know can I have would that be fake cash or fake credit would we ring you up on the fake you know, uh, uh, cash register you know and just th that whole system which was a, the domestic violence shelter system was a result of uh, women, the women's empowerment movement of the 1970s, uh, which raised the understanding of rape, which raised the understanding of domestic violence and began to build an entire system to support women. Um, and, uh, you know, I just thought it was so interesting to see that in action and how that really what is a voluntary system right that uh that has been built by women and their communities over the years ended up being a very key part of the social safety net for alex and for her child um and uh and you know they need they needed the food stamps too they needed the subsidized child care but that that housing the food the clothing at the domestic violence shelter was key and at least I, I think you know you don't have to have a tin foil you know, conspiracy to think that that I was I was think that uh, there's an intentionality about it. I mean, look at all the stuff you know that that uh, Mansion uh, when they were trying to extend uh, unemployment. I mean, and, and Mansion's a Democrat and very specifically said, 
you know, no, we we don't want we don't want to make it easy for folks to not work. I mean, it, the you know, so the the gloves, I think, in a lot of ways during the pandemic, have really come off in terms of. So, so I think your tinfoil is is, is well uh, deserved. <laughs> uh, but and, and back to you. Really, a Republican and Democrat. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking about welfare under Clinton in the 90s and how uh, welfare under Clinton basically added work as a central component. And so I kept thinking about that while watching Maid that um, it's not enough for her to provide for her daughter through the system. She also has to find her own employment. And how is taking care of a child not a job? Um, you know, that, that that was sort of a question that kept coming up for me over and over again in her different uh, housing and working situations. Well, and, I'd like to say when, uh, when people of African descent work for free taking care of children, it was called slavery. And when a woman does it in our society, it's called motherhood and you don't get paid. But the, the cost of childcare has just shown how much and how valuable that work is. And, you know, it's... There's still forces that just don't want it to happen because they want women back in the home where they belong as opposed to, they've always had to work. It's work. <laughs> Raising children is work. No, and, it's, and, and it's really clear. I mean, I've been just fascinated by this, you know, debate over that particular piece of, of Build Back Better. I mean, and, and at least you and I were talking about this the other day. I mean, you know, I was remembering, you know, when, when my son was, was in daycare, this was a while ago, and I'm trying, I, I think it was a few hundred dollars uh, a week, which I, which was, you know, well, let's be clear, it was like 35 years ago, and that was a lot of money, and I've been talking to some of my young friends who have kids in childcare, and it's thousands, it's thousands of dollars, and I, my jaw just drop because I know these people ain't making two, three hundred thousand dollars a year. I'm just trying to run the numbers to figure out how. And I mean, these are not people like Stephanie Land or the you know, the woman in Maid. Okay, these are folks with good double incomes, and they're paying thirty, forty thousand dollars a year in 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 childcare alone. And and the childcare workers ain't getting it. I mean, it's not like you know. I'm just I, I you know. And, and so this this little effort, you know, to try and, and actually get some government support for that, I mean, I'm going to be very surprised if it makes it through. Um, and so that was one of the reasons, you know, I was, when I was watching this show, I was thinking it's incredibly on the nose for what's happening right now. It's incredibly political. And yet I didn't, you know, it's not didactic. It's not preachy. It's, it's an, you know, incredibly again, watchable because of the people, but I was thinking, you know, can we just sit Congress down and make them watch this damn thing and then vote yeah. on this program? <laughs> you know, it might not make a difference for some of them. I think they may be beyond, but um, Lane, I know, you know, this is, let me get your thoughts. Yeah, so, you know, um, the other industrialized wealthy countries spend an average of $14,000 a year right. uh, supporting childcare or children under the age of five. The US spends 500, right? <laughs> we just, we absolutely, people um, routinely are spending the same amount or more for childcare that they are for their, for their mortgage or their rent, right? And, uh, and, and the pandemic has made it visible. 
like literally visible, like there's Junior on the screen while the parent <laughs> is trying to work, right? And so the employers are having to, to it's very visible. We understand that we have a, a childcare crisis. And, uh, you know, I do hope that the Build Back Better passes. There's some great, uh, it's, it has subsidized childcare, it has pre-K, et cetera. But even if it doesn't, even if that particular bill doesn't, the conversation in this country has changed because we have all been through this collective experience where we have seen what was invisible too much and the public sphere is now very, very visible. So I think that we are in a different space. And I just wanna piggyback off of something that Elise was saying earlier. Um, so uh, she was talking about how, of course, uh, parenting is is work even when it's not paid. And during the 1970s, there were different strains of feminism, uh, and one of them was that there were uh, there was a largely African American movement of welfare rights activists who said basically, uh, we sh women should have a choice about how about how they raise their children. It could be paid work, right? It could be that they're supporting the children in a larger family, or it should be able to be state supported. And that should be one of the options. And so the understanding, the idea that, that parents, uh, especially mothers, would have a right to support while they're doing the reproductive labor, that idea was put forward by African-American feminists in the 1970s, they were the leaders. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that um, for many years it was marginalized, but I think that some of those ideas are coming back more uh, into the public dialogue now. At least let me get you to put your, your, your coalition of labor union uh, women hat on, but I mean, that, that, those kind of issues, I mean, obviously Clue has been on for years, but I mean, do you, is it, do you think that's the case? I mean, are they coming back? I mean, are we gonna have a real conversation about this? Or, I mean, what I, I just, I mean, honestly, I just worry that there's gonna be this fight about it. Um, I mean, they've already, there was another piece of it that was already dropped. Um, and I, I agree with you, Elaine, that, that I mean, I'm happy that the conversations we had, but I'm tired of having conversations that then, you know, we, we get swept on the cutting room floor. But anyway, Elise. I think that um, what, I, what I'm reminded of is that, you know, we take one step forward and two steps back and right. That, right. that somehow um, we think that whatever happened in the 60s or 70s is going to fix and stay uh, into 2021 when, in fact, the, the, the forces that see keeping labor cheap and poor mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dying young and turning over is way more advantage to their system than it is feeding, clothing, nurturing people till they grow into their old age. We're not supposed to, we're not supposed to be growing into our old age of the working class. We're supposed to be dead, like my parents were by the age of 50 and 60, right? Instead, you know, we're living longer and 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 um, and 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 therefore, you know, staying on this, this planet longer using resources. So yeah, I, I think that that's that we have to keep coming back and, uh, and, and be vigilant because it, it, the, 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 force, the, the force of capitalism and, and greed um, is powerful and they are in there. They're in our government structure, even though they're the private business people. We saw that 
blatantly with the Trump administration, but it's always been there. It's been there with the Democrats. It's there, it's there with Biden. And so therefore we have to be eternally vigilant. And I think that, I think that I'm optimistic. I think, I think more people are woke. And I think what Lane said, I think there are more women engaged in that. And I was just, when, when you were talking about the women's shelters and that whole movement and that, uh, you know, the rape uh, crisis clinics, what the system would be like if women ran it. Mm. A little different, you think? Oh, I think so. I think so. How? Because, How? I, think, because I think that, first of all, we're better working collectively together. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They, they had, they've done experiments on this and they found that you know, when you put, if you put men in a submarine and women in a submarine, the men start fighting each other. The women go, hey, sisters, let's pull it together here. Let's <laughs> go over here and do the laundry. You do the cooking, you're in the kitchen. All right, I'm going to take care of the kids. I read this years ago, but anyway, hey, it anyway, makes sense I, to I, me. And, and because you know, you know what it is. We know what it is we're talking about. We know what it, I, I, I'm not a mother, but I took care of kids. I babysat. I did the whole nieces and nephews and, and I earned my living because I'm working class doing babysitting for other people. And I know what it takes. And I think that that empathy, that knowledge, um, that awareness is what we'd bring to that work, what women would bring to that work. And I think, yeah, we'd have a different system. So, so to your point about capitalism, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about, I mean, was anybody else just sort of blown away? I mean, they made sort of dropped out of the sky to me. I didn't hear it. I mean, I don't even remember. I think it just sort of popped up on Netflix and I was thinking, and I'm always looking for stuff about workers. So I thought, oh, this is, you know, the last movie I saw about made was with uh, J-Lo and was God awful. And so, <laughs> I, was so awful. I was thinking, I was like, you know, <laughs> shit, now we got a 10 part series with J-Lo or something. And, and, you know, it was just blown away. And I think that's part for me of what made it so incredible why I kept, you know, watching was, you know, I got a lot of things to say about Netflix, some good, some bad, but I mean, you know, I don't really necessarily see them as the cutting edge of the working class revolution. Kathy, help me out here. What, I mean, how, how does something like, and, and, and John Wells is not, a, is not a small producer, right? I mean, that's a big name. Well, this, I mean, this to me is the Achilles heel of capitalism or the funny uh, ironic loophole is that in order to get people to come into your entertainment situation, whatever it is, whether it's a streaming platform or a movie theater or a television screen, you have to offer them something that engages them. And often things that engage people are, have political complexity, have progressive messages, um, are about working class characters, have working class themes, um, have critiques of capitalism. Um, now, I think it's rare that those entertainment products lead to revolution, but they often reflect more about what's going on uh, than we realize. And um, I, won't, I won't get into some of the other shows um, that, that are on right now like that, but the biggest show ever to be watched on Netflix is Squid Game. And it includes a flashback to a real life 2009 Korean auto workers strike. Um, and so to me, it's just, fascinating that Netflix is bringing this content to its platform in order to get people to subscribe to its platform that contains critiques of the very system that allows Netflix to be so dominant 
uh, in the in the streaming platform uh, arena. So, first of all, we, we're going to talk about Squid Games when the rest of us have had a chance to watch it. Lisa's yeah. been watching it, and I'm like, why do I want to watch something about people getting killed? But then she she told me she you're right. She said no, there's some working class stuff going on here. I was like, all right, I'm gonna. <laughs> I got nothing against squids, but um, and the other one we should mention, I think it's American Rust uh, is another one. Uh, which I started watching. So we have we have lots more to uh, talk about. It's just the rest of us have to catch up with Kathy, who's way ahead mm -hmm. of us as usual. Lane, I know you've got something to say about the uh, the contradictions of capitalism and entertainment. <laughs> you know, um, I I think that Kathy's insight is right. You know that uh, the the Achilles' heel of capitalism is humanity, is humans, is the fact that it depends <laughs> on humans, right? And as Elise has been leading us for years, right, that we have spirits, we uh, connect with one another through art, through culture. And so um, absolutely, these corporations, um, you know, uh, tap that. Um, they're making money off of it, right? Right. And so uh, to me, I think that um, what it, the best thing we can do is do exactly what we're doing now, which is use the conversation that they're opening up and, and take it further um, and support independent artists who are part of our movement. And, and one of the cool things about it being on Netflix and, and God help us, uh, even on Amazon, you know, which is where the people are, people are watching stuff when stuff like this pops up on these major platforms, because I was thinking, I mean, I've seen, you know, we've shown in the Labor Film Fest plenty of movies about these kinds of issues, but, you know, so a few hundred, you know, people come out to see that and, and you know, th these are not, you know, blockbuster movies. I mean, made, you know, actually it's done incredibly well on Netflix, which, which totally, I mean, A, the fact that it showed up on Netflix and B, the fact that it did well, that was, that was almost as surprising to me. I mean, clearly Netflix, I guess, knows what they're doing. Um, you know, I'm, you I'm know, flashing on Tiger, Tiger, the Tiger King, but never mind. <laughs> Even Tiger King is about working class people. I know, but really weird, colorful. I mean, you know, that's that yeah, sort of working I, class porn, isn't it? It 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 was, it was, but but you know, it's not about yeah, it, yeah, it, but it, it it's about the underbelly of the wild animal world. So, I'm not yeah. saying it's not a fascinating story. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's sort of what we were talking about earlier that it just takes all the weird, wacky, look at what those weird, wacky, poor people do. You know, yeah. I'm sorry, Lane, I interrupted you. No worries. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think that the, it, it is very interesting to me that made, and frankly, Squid Game, although I haven't seen it, are doing so well. It is part of our moment, our, our worker rights revival moment, right? October. The pandemic shook up. Uh, what workers want and what they expect from a job and uh, has unmoored a lot of the assumptions that the elite could make about working people. And so, you know, we've seen Striketober, we're gearing up for Striketsgiving. There's lots of organizing at Starbucks, at HelloFresh, on, on campuses, and 4.4, the quit rate in I September know. was 4.4 <laughs> million. People are voting with their feet. A lot of those people, by the way, are women, yep. right? Who are still saddled with the care obligations 
And frankly, when we talk about essential workers, who are those? Those are women, they're people of color, right? And uh, it, you know, it's uh, the, it's, it's no coincidence that the jobs that the, uh, that the bosses can't hire for, like the hospitality jobs, the service jobs, et cetera, are women and people of color who have been doing those horrible jobs for so long, 40 years and counting, uh, and they're just not taking it anymore. We are, we are in a moment. And so I think that we're seeing that reflected in part by what people are, are watching. Well, you know, I think also to Kathy's point too, is like Netflix, I mean, they're studying, they're studying the statistics. They're looking at the algorithms, right? And I, and I heard this recently on NPR or something that um, the shows that have uh, different uh, people of color in them are doing better than shows that are all white. Huh. Yeah, so they're like, you know, because, because that, the, that the woman, the rich woman in, the, in, in Maid is a woman of African-American descent. Like, right. Oh, fascinating. This is 2021. <laughs> because just a year or so ago, she'd have been white. I, and I don't know if, that, if that's in the book, if that was her experience. It's not. No, she's a character who's added. And I think one thing I really credit Stephanie Land is she said she met with with a dozen or so production teams. Mm -hmm. And it was Netflix production team that said, let's take your story, let's not make it a movie, let's not like shrink it, let's expand it and let's fictionalize it more. Mm -hmm. okay. And so I think we have um, an African-American leader of the domestic violence shelter, who's a very positive character. Mm -hmm. The, the um, extremely wealthy, like $1,400 cashmere sweater owning um, uh, employer of, of Alex, who is African-American. I think they were, they, that that's an against stereotype character. Um, who who we don't like at first, and then we like her more, and they develop a friendship over time. So I I do think that the show dealt with race in some ways that were really interesting. Would the show have been as popular if Alex had been played by an African American actress? Huh, you know, that's interesting question. she is this sort of like archetypal. In fact, I some of the research I was doing before coming here today, she is Chanel's spokesperson. She represents the brand Chanel that, uh, 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 I'm forgetting her first name, uh, Ms. Qualley, in her, in, as part of her other job. So they, they brought the face of Chanel uh, to play the, the face of, of working class poverty, uh, uh, the working poor, right? Which is, which is sort of an unacknowledged, I think, except for the, you know, since the Occupy movement, we've finally been able to acknowledge that the working poor is, um, is is the category that that I think as policymakers and and uh, activists we have to be the most concerned about. Now, her mom Andy McDowell, I found out that. is also. Yeah, thank you, thank you for dropping that dime on that. I <laughs> I suspected I suspected um, that about the the actress. Uh, so thank you, thank you. Um. No, I just Annie McDowell is also a, is a longtime spokesperson for I want to for Claire. I don't Revlon. know some, Revlon, 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 something yeah. like that. Yeah. So, so that that's a really good point. Um, the other thing I, I, I uh, well, two things. One is I'm just remembering. Um, 
there's a very interesting job action, speaking of the relationship with uh, the African-American wealthy woman, you know, when she doesn't, she doesn't uh, pay. And I mean, we're not necessarily saying you should steal your boss's dog, but it did the job here. <laughs> <laughs> it did. That, that was fiction. That was fiction. <laughs> I don't know. Yes. Right up there, that was right up there with um, uh, Octavia, um, oh, and I, I Butler. In the help, in the help, no, in the help. Oh, yeah. Oh, when Spencer, she, Octavia Spencer. Octavia Spencer, when she puts doo doo in the pie, the cake that she gives a white woman, I thought, oh, no, that's total fiction. That is total fiction. She'd have been dead afterwards if they right. I mean, just like, nah, you're not doing that. Right. And I am the daughter of the help. So I know those stories. And my mother talks that we talked about the wealthy people she worked for, and we had all the inside dirt because they would talk about anything in front of her because they thought she was just another door. Mm. Plus, they would lean on her, what I would call what I call psychic mammy, to come and tell her all of their problems. So all the members of the family would tell her about the other members of the family. She knew all their dirt. And that was what made this memoir a bestseller, I think, was her kind of telling on rich people. Mm -hmm. um, Stephanie Land said her time as a housekeeper made her never want to be wealthy because she sort of saw the psychological kind of twistedness of like the, there's a couple that sleeps apart and, um, you know, a couple that has a stack of hustlers um, uh, on on their bedstand, the the things that sort of rich people have to do to get along uh, and get it up uh, mm -hmm. are kind of revealed by the the snooping that she does uh, as as their housekeeper. Or, or I was thinking the the this resonated for me because maybe my issues around food, but when she's you know she's so hungry and has nothing, and she's throwing out this perfectly good food, you know at that. At this rich person's house that you know would feed her for a week I, I that scene that that to me and again that's that's me but um that was that's about rich people that's about poor people that's about food um but it was i think one of the things it was you could kind of start to pick up things and i'm pretty sure they pulled from the memoir those kinds of that's real that 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 actually happens that that's something that is and it's a lot sort of little touch that I think makes a, a huge, a huge difference. The other thing I want, just wanted to say is, as the guy here, what I was, I was really pleased. I, I hated the husband and, and, but they didn't, but I, I they didn't, um, they didn't go the easy ride of just making him, a, you know, a horrible, you know, the bad guy. I mean, you know. He wasn't he, a monster. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that made it much tougher because you wanted to hate him. I wanted to hate him you know, <laughs> to justify, you know, everything. And, and then when she goes back to him, that's when I, they almost lost me. I was like, oh my God, this is, we're just never, we're just never getting, that's when I started to see how many damn episodes are there of this thing? Because <laughs> it was like, this is, this is, and I, I know I had friends who were in a women's shelter. So that was very real to me that, that, that cyclical thing where you, you know, like in a movie, you know, it starts here and it ends up, you know, with the happy ending. And, you know, that I think that's right, Chris. And one of the things I noticed in the one the final scene that Alex has with Sean, he says, like, I'm sorry, I'm such a piece of shit. And I'm waiting for the writers to kind of soften the blow right, and have right. her say, like, it's okay. 
you're a good dad, you know, something, but she doesn't say anything. No, no. She no. just gets in her car and drives away. Like the writers don't give us any of that. And, and I'm wanting that. And I don't know why I'm wanting it. You know, he's really cute. You know, I think that's <laughs> part of it. But like the writers don't, they, they don't make him a monster, but they don't let him off the hook in those final scenes. I well, think, I don't, I don't know if this is in the, in the book. Now, now I'm going to have to read the book to see what we're we'll just have another podcast so we can the books that we have to read for this <laughs> one thing i want to credit the writers for is identifying that he was in a 12-step program mm. and that the 12-step program was dealing with the alcohol abuse but not about the physical abuse yes. oh, interesting yes. and therefore her father was supportive of him and thought she should cut him some slack because he's in this program and he's and and you could be in an alcohol abuse program and not deal with these other issues that are going on. Uh, and so that the, that the writers let, had that happen, you know, that yeah, you can be in, a, you could need to be in a 12 step program, but you can be in a 12 step program and not be dealing with some other uh, um, glaring issues as in this case with the, with the physical abuse. That you know, I agree, at least one of the most heartbreaking moments of the show is when she needs a character witness to get her daughter back. And she asks her father to basically testify or for her and to testify that Sean has, was, uh, you know, contr basically controlling her mm -hmm. and her father doesn't understand and doesn't, and refuses. Right. Um, and you can just see what she's up against uh, in terms of the, the men in her life and the through line. Uh, and of course the, the father was Sean's sponsor in the 12 step program. But it's yeah. also, I mean, that's one of the things that's really, I think, explored well, which is, and as she, you know, she talks about it, you know, even when she's going into the abuse shelter, she doesn't really think of herself as an abused woman. She has not been physically assaulted, um, although having been around violence as a kid where I was never hit, you don't have to be hit. It doesn't have to physically touch you, is what I'm trying to say. And I think they do yeah. a really good job of, of showing that, that she doesn't think of herself that way, but she is definitely abused. Um, the other thing I'm thinking while we're talking is that the other interesting relationship is with the guy who's really nice to her. Nate. And, and how, and you know, so then of course you wanna like him and you got, you got your whole night, you got the, 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 the bad night, you're doing the bad things and then you got the good night, but the good night turns out to, not be i mean he he goes in this whole other direction and that you know they, you, you sort of don't want to see happening as it's happening in front of you kathy yeah and i thought that was another interesting you know they they're bringing uh again kind of race and ethnicity and stereotyping into it he's uh uh maybe indian uh American, maybe Indian, Canadian. Uh, I'm not sure his uh, nationality. Um, and so he's stereotyped as a tech nerd. Um, but I think what's interesting is that he, um, she does like him and maybe is even romantically interested in him, but she keeps drawing boundaries. She keeps saying, if I accept these gifts from you, then I'm, this isn't gonna be an equal relationship in terms of power because you have so much. And he says, no, it's okay, you can accept these gifts. And then she spends a night with her 
with her ex, Sean, and he says, I'm not going to babysit your child while you have sex with your ex. So his, that power dynamic finally is revealed when she, um, when she, when she goes back, uh, to, to her partner. And so, um, you know, I keep wanting her, I keep am rooting for her to kind of get together with him because he's so nice and he's wealthy and, you know, he has all these resources. He's really cute. He's and really- he's really cute, <laughs> right? I'm like, nice. please dump the husband, go with him. This is like, uh, this, this is candy here, candy. Yeah, but I think they're trying to show the complexity of of how do you stand on your own two feet when when the people who are helping you have have ulterior motives well ulterior motives or is this the way you know this is like uh he who has the gold rules Mm. if you if you're a stay-at-home mom and you rely on your husband's income and everybody thinks this is the ideal world, right? What power do you have if they have all the power of the money in a culture that values money as power? Yeah. I think that, that, that is, that, that, that it's, I was thinking when you talk about ulterior motives, it's not ulterior. Every, everybody does something for a reason. That, that's what yeah. this show feels. Every single person yeah. is doing something for a reason. Good reason, yeah. bad reason, whatever reason. And actually, and the other things we have to talk about is her mom. And uh, I mean, full disclosure, my mom, I, I, I thought I was watching my mom. Better looking, admittedly, Andy McDowell. But uh, <laughs> my mom, the artist, I mean, seriously, that, that woman must have read my mom's journals, you know. Yeah. Um, and and it was it was and so I know you know that t- t- everybody loved my mom, but she was impossible. She was impossible, and I I mean, the whole thing with the babysitting, I was like, there's like there's no way, and I love my mom, but there's no way I'd have my mom babysit my kid. <laughs> Not happening. But I thought it was an incredibly good portrayal uh, of of that high functioning but seriously, seriously problematic. And I didn't even know they were mother and daughter in real life until uh, after, after I watched the whole thing. Um, I'm not sure that it really makes that big of a difference. What do y'all think? I wondered if- Daughter in real life? Yeah. I think it's more that Andy McDowell's star power is partly what made the show so ah. successful. Okay. Uh, okay. There's an interesting moment that sort of connects her her vulnerability to uh, emotional abuse with her mother, where the domestic violence uh, shelter leader, and I'm forgetting her name, says to Alex, you know, Alex says, I've been taking care of my mom since I was six. And the, the shelter leader says, what if you didn't? Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was a really profound moment because you see that it's it's being parented by this kind of charming and charismatic, but mentally ill person has made her more uh, uh, vulnerable to these emotionally abusive relationships. Yeah, it packs a lot in. I mean, what's, as just as we're talking about it, I mean, and these are not, these are not small <laughs> issues, any of these uh, at all. And I think that was, that was one of the things I just found so thrilling about this it made me just so happy and it's one of the reasons I, I really you know right away I got in touch with Lisa and said we, we have to we have to talk about this because 
you know, to have something this major and then that turns out to be this popular and, and you know, with a big producer and some big name stars, you know, dealing with these kinds of issues, uh, I think, you know, as I think you've all said, I mean, you've all said it's a moment when I'm really hoping, and I guess maybe we can go out on this, I'm, I'm really hoping it's not a moment. You know, when when does a moment become a movement? And Lane, I'm going to go to you on that because I, <laughs> you know, I feel like you've got a historical perspective for us here. Well, I mean, I think that um, somebody brought up Occupy. I think Ms. Kathy mentioned Occupy earlier. Um, you know, we we've we've been in uh, for a while. Uh, there has been a growing understanding of the level of inequality of just how wrong that level of inequality is and the fact that there is so much suffering among working people and poor people. That has been growing for a while. The pandemic has just blown it wide open. Mm -hmm. And what we find is a, what history shows us is that moments like war, or economic meltdown or pandemics, these are crucibles. These are moments when uh, we go through something together and on the other end, it's, it's different. That does not necessarily mean that working people are gonna have more power. It means that it's changing and it's different and that there's, a, there's often a major struggle, uh, class struggle after these, um, these moments, these crucible moments. And so we are, that's what we're in. We're in the struggle moment. And so I don't know how it's going to turn out, uh, but it's the, it's uh, this, it's one of the first ones we've had in many, many years, um, decades. And, uh, you know, uh, I think that um, working people are, are fighting and they are, they're standing up and fighting in a new, in a new way in this moment. Kathy? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think from a kind of a cultural point of view, I really trace it from the global financial collapse to the present. And so Occupy kind of came out of that global financial collapse. And we started to see what I think were a lot of um, collapse influence narratives. If anybody has ever read the novel Gone Girl, um, you know, it's about a couple that moves to the Midwest after the, the global financial collapse and is trying to sort of uh, restart, restart their lives. And there's these scenes where these defunct malls are kind of taken over by homeless people. So that, so I, and then I, I curated a year and a half of events um, acknowledging the 200th birthday of Karl Marx. Uh, in 2018, and there there was tremendous energy throughout the the um, the late the late 2000s and then the 2010s of people going back to Marx in that period and artists, intellectuals, uh, the publication of Piketty's book Capital. So I feel like we've been in this long kind of decade of of acknowledging. Uh, that the inequality is getting more extreme. And then Lane, like you said, the pandemic really ratcheted that up. People with $2 billion when the pandemic started now have $16 billion, you know, that sort of thing. So um, the inequality is getting worse. The recognition of it is increasing. So now it's really on us as, as activists and leaders uh, to, to take that information and, and turn it into progressive policy. And that's 
that's the opportunity we have here that I'm really hoping we don't squander. And that's why they keep attacking Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is, it is grotesque and I, I've never seen anything like it. This, this publicly and at this level because she represents to them that force of the, the, the 99%, yeah. the ones who recognize that um, before there was race, there was class and caste. But I, I think to, um, I, I was thinking when, when uh, uh, Lane was talking, I was thinking about the, the climate conference recently and the, the most exciting, I mean, all the, the blah, blah, blah about agreements and so forth, I didn't pay attention to because I just take no stock in it. What the most exciting thing to me was hearing young people saying basically the same thing. They're saying, that's all bullshit. And we're tired of you all talking about this shit. We're going to, you're not going to have to live with it. We're going to have to live with it. And we're fed up with this. And I don't know what they're gonna do, but I, that was the first time I actually felt helpful on climate change. Cause I thought there's a whole generation, maybe two generations. And I'm talking, these were like pre-teens also. This was not 20 somethings. These were really young folks who were, who were activists, um, who are fed up and who are literally in the streets. And I thought, you know, they're not gonna wait for, you know, for people to sign agreements, you know, they're gonna do stuff. And I think to the points that you were just making, I mean, the thing I mean, you know, I've been, you know, checking this, this strike tracker that the AFL has got on and, you know, it's, it's really interesting to drill down I and mean, everybody's following the 10,000 people strikes. I'm interested in the 50 people here and 50 people there, because it's one thing to walk out with 10,000 people, but it was a recent one that a company named Garlock up in Palmyra, New York, had nothing to do with my family, but, uh, you know, like, I think 200 workers went out on strike there in Palmyra, New York. Palmyra, New York. This is this is not a hotbed of discontent, you know. Uh, so that that to me is very very, and those are the kind of ones that that don't necessarily. Um, although these days, actually, you know, because the media is so attuned to it, they they actually do wind up making uh, more uh, attention. But any anything that we forgot to ask or anything burning that that you all want to to say about about made uh, before we before we wrap up don't want to leave anything on the table no you know i would just point out congress has the power to change this and fix parts of it hopefully they'll take that <laughs> as as we've been talking the the house passed the build back better act oh no right. wow thank you kathy <laughs> we did it we did it y'all our conversation that's how powerful it is <laughs> all right all right i'll take that <laughs> well done we're gonna have to do this more often what else do we need to get done <laughs> Really? All right. We so we have our we have our viewing assignments. So we're all going to go watch American. Uh, so Kathy, tell us American Rust. American Switch Rust a. is on Showtime. Um, but if you get a free trial, you can. It's I did it's, that. It's a, it's not that many episodes. You can watch it in a week's free trial. Um, I actually think uh, that American Rust and Mayor of Easttown both have kind of a copaganda problem. Uh, they both center cops as main yes. characters, and Thank you'll you. see that. And Maids does not in a way that was so refreshing. Um, and then I definitely recommend Squid Game. Um, it is like it does, you know, kind of tip over into a horror genre, 
but the the message is just shockingly uh radical and progressive all right we've got our, we've got our viewing assignments we'll, we'll do those yeah. and then we'll uh we'll, we'll schedule our next get together to talk about that Thank you both for being on the podcast. It was wonderful to get to see you. And I look forward to uh, seeing everybody in person soon. And everybody Thank have you. A great, have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you. Thank great, you. great to talk with you all. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. Have a good one.